0: a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Good morning and welcome to another episode of sexology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And I also wanted to thank those of you who took some time and reviewed uh, wrote a review for this show on itunes it was very helpful for me to hear what you like about different episodes what you find helpful and also it helps me to reach the bigger audiences so thank you so much for your time and writing those reviews i'm super excited about my conversation today i just finished an interview with dr emily Nagoski. I know many of you guys are familiar with her work. She is the New York Times best-selling author of Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. She has a PhD in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University and a master's degree in counseling with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. She has taught graduate and undergraduate classes in human sexuality, relationships and communication, stress management, and sex education. To be honest with you, first I got introduced to her book by one of my sex educator friend and colleague, and I loved it. I always recommend it to my clients and I was super excited when Dr. Nagoski accepted my invitation for the interview. During this episode, we talked about the dual control model of sexual response, what are some of the common bricks and accelerators for people And she talked about some of the cultural and uh, society factors that impacts our view about sexuality, and it can get in our way of developing meaningful and exciting sexual relationships. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Emily Nagoski. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. It's my honor and pleasure to have and introduce our guest today, Dr. Emily Nagoski. Dr. Nagoski, welcome to our show. It is so great great to to talk talk to you. you. Thank you so much. Your book is one of the best book in the field of sexology that I read and I always yeah. recommend it to my clients. They love it. And one of the concepts that I often find that my patients really connect with is the dual control model of sexual response. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the dual control
1: model is uh, a model of how sex works in the brain. Dual control model, you can tell it's got two parts. Um, And the first part is the part we're mostly familiar with, the gas pedal or the accelerator of sexual response. It notices all the sexually relevant information in the environment. So this is everything that you see, hear, smell, touch taste or imagine that your brain codes is sexually relevant and it sends that turn on signal and it functions at a low level all the time. Right now, just the fact that we're talking about sex is a little bit sexually relevant. So it's sending a little bit of turn on signal, but at the same time that that's happening in parallel, we have a sexual break that notices all the reasons not to be turned on right now. Again, it's everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. And traditionally, we're used to thinking of difficulties with sexual arousal as being uh, not enough stimulation to the accelerator. So you're taught to add games and porn and role play. And those things are great if you like them. Go for it. But it turns out most of the time when people are struggling with arousal, desire, orgasm, it's not because there's too little stimulation to the accelerator. It's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. So a lot of really effective sex therapy focuses
0: on figuring out what it is that's hitting the brakes and getting rid of that stuff. I love that. I love the concept of uh, brick and accelerators and kind of differentiating them. And one concept that was fascinating, I was reading about was the idea of the context. I know mm-hmm. that many of my clients, they think about, okay, if we light candle, if we, as you were talking about, we watch uh, erotic uh, movies, it's going to help. But you emphasize the importance of context. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So
1: I simplified things by saying that the accelerator responds to sexually relevant stimulus. It turns out that what counts as sexually relevant varies depending on the situation. And all of us have experienced this in the form of something like tickling. So tickling is not a thing everybody enjoys, but even hypothetically, you can imagine a situation where you're already in a fun, flirty, sexy state of mind, and your certain special someone tickles you, that could potentially feel playful and fun and lead to other things. But if that exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you are pissed off at them, then you want to punch him in the face. It's the same sensation, that tickling sensation, but your brain interprets it differently because the context in which it's perceiving that sensation is different. So for most people, the right context for in order for your brain to interpret the world as a sexy place is one that is safe and low stress, high affection and high trust, and also explicitly erotic. Those are sort of the three secret ingredients for most people. It varies a lot from person to person, which uh, the creation of the right context is so powerful that take something like spanking, which under day-to-day circumstances could be annoying all the way up to painful, But in the right context, when you have low stress, high affection, high trust, and an already explicitly erotic context, the pain of spanking can actually be interpreted by your brain as erotic. It can transform the sensation as far as your perception is concerned.
0: Fascinating. And I know that with the... Again, when I talk about context, where I first learned about it in your book (laughs) with my patient, they kind of get frustrated because it's easier for them to change the external environment Mm -hmm. and it's more challenging to to change the internal, what's going on inside. So what are some of the recommendations for you? What would be helpful for people if they want to kind of explore what what are their accelerators and what are some of their brakes?
1: yeah the figuring out how to turn off the things that are hitting the brakes is like the most efficient and powerful thing a person can do to maximize their sexual well-being and some of the things that hit the brakes actually are very simple to change if you're worried about your kids walking in in the middle if that's hitting the brakes lock the door or schedule a time when the kids aren't there uh if the grit on the sheets is distracting you change the sheets if you're worried about Uh, phones ringing or any sort of interruption, if you're like thinking about the dishes not being done or like those are things you can do something about pretty straightforwardly and like go ahead and do that. Uh, I have talked to a lot of women in particular who beat themselves up and say, oh, but I shouldn't have to have the door locked in order to feel like I can really let go. I shouldn't have to feel like the dishes are done. And so therefore, now I can let go. There's no should here. There's just if it helps you to release your brakes, do that thing. It is uh, more complicated when the things that are hitting your brakes are not just just external factors that you have some control over. One of the main factors that can interfere is negative body image. So self-criticism of our bodies and oftentimes sometimes of our sexualities. So if you are trying to get into a sexy state of mind, you're with your partner and you're having thoughts about the ways your body falls short of your internal sense of what your body should be. If you're having doubts, if you've absorbed cultural messages about like you're not even supposed to be doing this behavior, that's going to hit the brakes. And you've spent decades of your life having that message reinforced over and over and over again. So that's not going to go away just by deciding I'm not going to let that hit the brakes anymore that takes practice and for body image in particular there's one uh evidence-based practice that I really recommend actually do this you stand in front of a mirror naked or as close to naked as you can tolerate and you look at what you see there and write down everything you see that you like And for a lot of people, the first thing that will happen is that their brains will flood with all these self-critical thoughts, the thing that they've been taught to feel ashamed of and like that aren't good enough about their bodies. And that's fine. You're going to you can have those self-critical thoughts literally any other time you want. Just right now, you're going to put those on the back shelf and you're going to notice just the things you like. And if it is, you know, your ankle bones, if it is your eyes, if it's your spirit, whatever it is, Go ahead and write that down and then do it again another day and then do it again another day and another day. And the more often you do this, the more you will release yourself from those internalized self-criticisms that are totally unnecessary and just getting in the way of your quality of life. And it will also inoculate you. Because when you walk out the door, when you turn on the television, you're going to be exposed to these cultural messages that are trying to make you feel ashamed of yourself and like you're not good enough. But the more you look at your body and appreciate the things that are great about it, the more resistant you'll be to those messages, the more you can brush them off and you won't internalize them.
0: I love them. One of the area of the uh, my practice is on eating disorders. And mm-hmm. I see that many women struggle with self images, and they try to lose weight. And some of them they do. And although in this Two, they're three, four size smaller. The self image just maybe changes for a few months and they go back where they are. And I love when you recommend that the book, Healthy at Every Size, Mm -hmm. your book. And I, I see that that approach can change how people feel about their body, kind of accepting where they are and work around that and do things that they give them pleasure. So I think I love that. It's, Astonishing. So what the research has shown us, especially over
1: the last five years, this increasingly strong body of evidence that shame around body shape and size is far more dangerous and destructive than the fat on our bodies that we've been taught to feel ashamed of
0: absolutely i was the other day i was talking to one of my clients we were talking the issue when they come in was about that how they're not attracted to each other anymore but when we process it to get in specific case she was talking about the shame that she had around her weight and Mm -hmm. how that was getting in the way so i I love it when you talk about the body image and self-image and its relationship with the sexuality
1: Yeah, people don't warn us ahead of time that our bodies are going to continue to change across our entire lifespan. Somehow people have this illusion that when they get to adulthood, they're going to have a body and it's going to stay that body forever. So when you get into a long-term relationship with a person, they're going to have that. No, their body's going to change. Your body's going to change. You'll still be the same essential human being, but you learn to love whatever it is that's in the bed with you. I have found, I don't know if this is your experience too, but sometimes it's the case that people project onto the shape of their own body or the shape of their partner's body, things that are actually about sort of the accumulated gunk that builds up in any relationship. They call it body image stuff, or it's about how they've gained weight or their partner has gained weight. But that's just a metaphor for, I have all this resentment built up about the years of our having a basic conflict about, whatever, the dishes, picking up the kids, you always being late, and resolving that part, people don't so much experience the body stuff as being that relevant anymore.
0: Absolutely. And I always talk about how things outside the bedroom impacts what's going on inside the bedroom. So I definitely agree with that point.
1: Yeah, relationship factors are another really key aspect. There's a relationship researcher named Sue Johnson. She wrote a book, Yeah, love like so emotion focused <laughs> therapy. I'm a giant fan. The way she puts it is there's a key fundamental question in a relationship, and that is, are you there for me? Can I trust that when I need you, you're going to show up and be there in a loving and compassionate way? And if the answer to that question is no, then fixing, you know, the desire and arousal problems in a relationship is secondary. Fix the trust. And then it will be so much easier to fix the sex.
0: Definitely. And it's a good segue to talking about attachment. I know Mm -hmm. you talk extensively in the book about attachment. What is your uh, thoughts about how our attachment with our partner kind of uh, impact our sex life? This is an area where, again, there's been an increasing amount of
1: research over the last 10 years. Unsurprisingly, people who have secure attachment have healthier, happier sex lives with more pleasure, less pain, fewer STIs, fewer unwanted pregnancies, better relationships, more orgasms. Literally everything about your sex life is likely to be better if you have a secure attachment and that sort of fundamental, are you there for me? Yes, establishing your uh, relationship. Folks who have insecure, either avoidant or anxious attachment are likely to find that that influences the way they interact with sex. Anxious folks, Maybe more likely to have sex as a way to reinforce an attachment. Like, I'm worried you're going to go away, and so I'm going to have sex with you to make sure you stay. Or I'm going to have sex early in a relationship to try and get you attached and bonded to me so you know that I can be a place where you can go for sex. They're actually more likely to have affairs because their anxious attachment style fills them with fear that people will leave them. And so they use sex as an attachment behavior to try and keep people in their lives, even if it's not appropriate to the structure of the relationship and the agreements they've made with other people in their lives. Avoidant folks will tend to avoid sex actually and have more non-relationship based sex where they're just having sex and it is not related to being in a relationship. They actually have a later sexual a sexual debut is one of my favorite <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> words in sex research. They they begin having sex later in life because they want to protect themselves. They might be more likely to use condoms because again, that condom is a metaphor for there's still a barrier between us and I'm not that deeply invested. So in both cases, with anxious and avoidant, there's greater risk of STIs, and one of pregnancy, as well as more pain, fewer orgasms, less pleasure, because it's driven by the anxiety rather than being driven by really wanting to experience pleasure with this other person.
0: Definitely makes sense. And one thing that I'm curious to learn a little bit more about is that I hear all the time from my friends, clients talking about how at the beginning of a relationship, sex is exciting. And when they're uh, reaching the more like they bond with the partner, there's Mm -hmm. like attachment there, sex gets less exciting there, although the relationship is deepening. How do you kind of recommend people to navigate that? Yeah,
1: so it's definitely the case that when things are new, so when you're in that hot and heavy, fallen in love stage, you've got a couple of factors increasing, literally increasing the quantity of neurotransmitters that are being released by your brain in response to these stimuli. The fact that it is new, the novelty increases the amount of brain chemicals. The fact that it's attachment related and attachment is this really fundamental biological mechanism driving you to go be connected with this person it is huge so that all amplifies the way your brain responds to sex stimuli remember that context piece the context of falling in love really amplifies sexual arousal so that is one kind of experience and we happen to live in a culture that really privileges that particular kind of sexual pleasure and sexual experience So then, you know, 10 years later, when the flame of the hot and heavy fallen in love has burned down to a smoldering ember, you're in a situation where in order to get it to burst into flame, you got to take the bellows to it. Like you got to do a little work. The context doesn't so much cause flames as it does like sustains the fire. Um, And there's a couple of different philosophies about what to do at this point. The one that works best for me and people like me, but definitely not for everybody, is to change your assessment of that sort of low intensity, we are attached to each other experience through mindfulness practices. So the metaphor here is this isn't about like, I'm starving, I can't wait to like go and get the thing Right. That's one way to experience it. That's the hot and heavy fallen in love. But then there's the like I come home to my certain special someone and we cook the dinner together and we feed each other the strawberries we were saving for dessert and we lick wine off each other's bodies like that's not the hot and heavy fallen in love. But it is really intensely pleasurable if you bother to pay attention to the pleasure so the hot and heavy is more about wanting of the sex, whereas the fallen, in, like we are now a sustained couple, is more about the pleasure, the enjoying, the liking. One of the main ideas in the book is that wanting and liking are non-identical experiences and the later in life sexual experiences are much more about just enjoying what you've got to experience. And there's my dog. <laughs>
0: he or she is very quiet I've noticed (laughs) some some footsteps but I I didn't uh, hear him yet or her yet so no definitely it makes sense and I think one uh, video I really liked I I, I'm a big fan of Esther Perel and when she talks Mm -hmm. about the desire and how being kind of being separate but together is important and Mm -hmm. I think just like from I work with some traditional, more conservative families that they are very like And and my background, I'm Iranian. So they're very enmeshed. And I I think they just all the time. And I I say it all the time that they say, you know, we feel like brothers and sisters because you're so close. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a challenge. If you're it's a fine line and challenge that couples need to navigate.
1: Yeah, there are. So I there's sort of these two camps and Astaire is the other camp. Of how do you spark the fire when you've been together for 10 years or 20 years? How do you get that, like, not brother and sister feeling, but like, this is a sexy person who I would like to have some sex with. Ah. And there are evidence-based strategies for doing that. Esther talks a lot about building distance so that you see your partner from an external point of view, uh, reek with, with, uh, A new exposure was you watch your partner giving a presentation or interacting with your kids or you build rules about what you're allowed to do with each other versus what you're not allowed to do with each other. Anytime you put things off limits, that makes those it's called the ironic process, of course, and it's sort of okay. so imagine whatever you do, do not think about a white bear. And the first thing you do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's all I'm thinking.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So when I tell you not to do something, your brain sort of like keeps checking. Am I doing this? Am I doing this? And as a result, you end up. So if you make rules in your relationship, like we're not going to be having this kind of sex or that sort of interaction, your brain sort of gets uh, stuck in the idea of being able to do that thing. The first couple, I'm not a sex therapist, but I trained as a sex therapist. And the first couple I ever saw, the first week, we took sex off the table for the duration of sex therapy. You're not going to be having sex with each other. This is a couple that hadn't had any sex for six months. They came back the next week and were like, "We totally had sex."
0: <laughs> I had that experience. I do yeah. sensate focus therapy sometimes, mm-hmm. and they say absolutely don't do sex for couples who are struggling. And they come in and so oh, after lots of like few months, we started having sex. I was like wonderful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. And I know we talked about a little bit about the self-image and how it impacts people's sexuality. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to learn a little bit about, based on your research and uh, like your experiences, uh, what are some of the factors that impact uh, specifically on society and culture that affects women's sexuality?
1: Women are. a little bit screwed as far as a culture is concerned, because on the one hand, we get the message that we're not supposed to be sexual at all. Um, We get called sluts and whores, and those are derogatory words, women who actually want and like having sex. But at the same time, if we don't want and like sex, we get called frigid. So we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. So how does an individual human being just trying to have a healthy sex life find a place for herself in a world where she's not supposed to want sex, but if she doesn't want sex, there's something wrong with her. And the solution has to be noticing all the different messages that you're receiving through all the different channels. So it'll be coming from the mainstream culture. It'll be coming from your religious or spiritual community. It'll be coming from your family of origin, from your partner, all these expectations everyone has about who you're going to be as a sexual person, and finding within yourself, what of those things feels right? What Which thing is actually a match for what I am? With, I, over and over, I say in the book, trust your body, listen to what your body wants. But if you've been gender socialized feminine, you've been taught to trust other people's opinions about your body more than you trust what your body is trying to say. So the key shift is to begin trusting that your body knows what it wants and what it likes and learning to listen really carefully for what's a good fit for my sexuality and learning to let go externalize all those other messages that aren't actually who you are, but are just other people's expectations for you.
0: That is definitely right on point. And I know you we you, in the book, you were talking about kind of saying to yourself, I'm a, I'm a woman who likes sex and kind of yeah. noticing what kind of emotion comes up with it. And again, I, I, this is something I'm very passionate about. And I was just kind of being mindful of what kind of thoughts come to my mind. Even for me, I noticed there are certain different messages from the society mm-hmm. is associated mm-hmm. with being a woman who loves sex.
1: Yeah, because on the one hand, like, what if there are times that I don't? Because there are times that people don't because it's context dependent. And then what, so does that mean that there's something wrong with me? Or like, what if, what if I feel bad about the times that I do want and like sex? Because I've been told that I'm not supposed to. So it's this very complex sort of stew of feelings. And that's okay. That's, normal it's complicated so being okay with the complicated and living with it and still finding a path for yourself it's not going to be a perfect path where we sort of have this aspirational ideal this sense of like the sexuality we're supposed to have this image that we're always striving for and the thing is that aspirational ideal is not something we're ever actually going to achieve and that feels sad for some people because they find it really hard to believe that the sexuality they have is a sexuality worth having. They feel like their sexuality isn't good enough if they can't ever be that thing that they believe they're supposed to be. That might be the most important thing a woman can do to expand her sexual well-being: is to get clear about the ways her sexuality is not a match for the ideal sort of phantom sexuality she's been taught she's supposed to have and getting to like what that sexuality is. I talk in, over and over in the book, confidence and joy, confidence and joy. Um, and then a student <laughs> asked me, Emily, can you define those terms, confidence and joy? And I'm like, <laughs> so I was, I was vacuuming. I've got two, t- two cats and two dogs. So I was vacuuming my house because I do that a lot. And I was thinking, like, what do I mean by confidence and joy? And I finally figured out confidence is knowing what is true knowing what's true about how your sexuality and your body actually work, being pretty clear about what that phantom sexuality is that you've been taught. And that's the easy part, knowing what is true about you, knowing about the brakes and the gas, knowing about desire. And then the second part, joy, is loving what is true. And that's the hard part because if you've been taught that whatever's true about your sexuality is not what's supposed to be true, you have to try on that possibility that what if the sexuality I've got is a sexuality that's worth enjoying.
0: Fantastic. And I, I, I love everything. I feel like saying I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I truly <laughs> it's music to my ears. And I think the point that you were talking about, which is so true, is that kind of identifying what is ideal and what is real. Because I know many of my clients and my friends, they can have these images based on the movies they watch, based Mm -hmm. on the messages they got, that your sexuality needs to be in a certain way. Your accelerators needs to be quite sensitive and Mm -hmm. you should have no break. And if (laughs) if you're not meeting those areas, are not there there is something wrong with you and you mm-hmm. need to do whatever it takes to get there
1: yeah right and that's that's just not how it is but think about how that would actually work in real life our breaks are there for a reason to stop us from becoming sexually aroused and engaging sexually be- behavior that would not be good for us high risk sex just like culturally inappropriate, like in the middle of a, you know, work meeting, like the break is there for a reason. It's doing important work. We have to have the break. And if we judge and blame ourselves for that, that's not giving credit to the break for doing all the good things that it does for us.
0: Absolutely. Again, I loved every moment of this conversation (laughs) we had. I'm the biggest fan of your book. So, and I'm sure our listeners definitely enjoyed this interview as well. So if they would like to get a hold of you, what would be the best way? Twitter is the thing I check most often. It's just at Emily Nagoski. Perfect. I'll make sure I put it on the show notes. And again, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy and it was (laughs) absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.